0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details.
1: Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. In the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, Is it good, friend? It is bitter. Bitter, he answered. But I like it because it is bitter. And because it is my heart. Welcome
0: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that, of course, is the poem In the Desert by Stephen Crane, um, a poem that uh, that I've, I've, I've long... Uh, Sound uh nice and, and creepy and thought provoking.
0: I think a lot of it depends on which word in the last sentence you emphasize. Does he like it because it is my heart or because it is my heart? <laughs>
1: Yeah, there are several ways to, to 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 piece it apart there. But it's also the perfect poem for Valentine's Day. Today is Valentine's Day. I don't know if anyone has ever taken in the desert and transformed it into a Valentine, but I think that's a fabulous idea, depending on who you're giving it to. You want to make sure that they're going to understand the cleverness of this. Uh, but it's just the right length. You know, you could put, uh, you know, half of it on the front, half of it inside. You could you could draw the bestial creature there consuming its own heart. Uh, somebody has to have done this before. I'm sure someone will send uh, links uh, to, to this effect to us.
0: You could put it on those little heart-shaped candies that look like they're like made of chalk, basically.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be clever. That's, I mean, it has to have been done. It's such a great idea. Does
0: anybody eat those by the way? Does somebody like the taste of chalk enough that they would consume that?
1: I remember eating them when I was a child. Um you know and, and maybe and I don't know if they're bitter that would <laughs> but they are shaped like hearts. I, uh, yeah, at a time when you ate a lot of candy it made sense to at least try a few of them. But I think then you realize there were better candies to eat, easier candies to eat. Yeah. That's such a
0: a childhood mentality. It's like, well, it's not good, but it is candy, so I guess I have to eat it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I should at least least try it. It's just polite. Yeah. So, yes, it's Valentine's Day, a time when we tend to think about the over-commercialization of love, and especially romantic love, as well as the symbolism of the human heart. Um, you know, I think this is a topic we've we've touched on before on the show. You know, we when it comes to the heart, we know that this is the the, the center of our circulatory system. Uh, we know it pumps our blood, but it's also seen as the symbolic or metaphoric seat of love and passion. And given all these complex ways of thinking about the heart, we also tend to feel a certain kind of way about the topic of heart removal when it comes up, be it something that comes up in the biological, uh, you know, the um, uh, medical world, or if it comes up in random horror movies (laughs) or just as a turn of phrase.
0: Is this how you landed on on heart removal for, for the topic this week? Were you watching a movie where a heart gets ripped
1: out? I don't think I was specifically when I started thinking about this, but we have watched several movies on Weird House Cinema, our Friday weird movie episodes. Uh, that, uh, like, particularly, I think um, some 70s films we've watched, such as The Lorelei's Grass, Horror mm. Rises from the Tomb, Return of the Blind Dead. I think all three of those feature a scene in which somebody's heart is cut out and it's eaten by, say, a monster. Or or, a, or a, um, an occultist knight, that sort of thing.
0: Wait, am I remembering wrong? Is, is the whole point of Lorelei's grasp that the monster eats people's hearts?
1: Yes, yeah, she does, yeah. Well, I mean, there are other aspects of the, the film. But it clearly, it, it, in terms of what is the, the gory point of the film, that seemed to be uh, one of its main fascinations.
0: Well, she eats people's hearts and she falls in love with that, uh, I don't know, Spanish-German, uh, Elvis, Peter Fonda kind of guy.
1: Oh, yes, yes. Anyway. Yes, yeah. Uh, th- go back to those episodes if you want more of that. Uh, well, when it comes to to heart ripping, of course, there are some more famous examples that probably come to everyone's mind. There's the 1992 fighting game Mortal Kombat. I think everybody has, uh, that was around in the 90s uh, and and in decades after, but especially in the 90s, you have that that, that very pixelized version of that uh, that heart rip in mind. And then, of course, there's the 1984 film Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which features a a rather famous heart-rip scene that uh, despite the film being set in India, this actual heart-rip and all the things that the baddies are up to uh, are really... Take gory elements from at least a couple of non-Indian cultures uh, and uh, some of the cultures we're going to discuss in this episode and kind of make a patchwork uh, villain um, religion here for Indiana Jones to go up against. And I think they also incorporate more than a little bit of um, fictional satanic ritual. Like it's a very unbelievable culture that uh, Indiana Jones is supposedly encountering in that movie, to say the least yeah <laughs> now other heart rips of of note uh correct me if i'm wrong but doesn't jason voorhees rip out a heart at least once uh f- oh i don't recall uh probably <laughs> yeah uh, uh well
0: i do know uh that's one of the worst movies in the whole series ends up like the a bunch of people a bunch of like troops come in and blow up jason and then somebody eats jason's heart and oh, turns goodness. into jason it's brilliant
1: okay Uh, I was I had I haven't I don't think I'd actually seen Leprechaun 6, a.k.a. Leprechaun Back to the Hood from uh, 2003. This is the last one to star Warwick Davis. But that has a heart rip in it. Like the heart rip scene, I guess, in a film is usually pretty easy to do because you just it's mostly sound effect. And then the visual of somebody holding a bloody um, palpating heart. Oftentimes that's done by just having the person squeeze like kind of a rubber heart. Mm-hmm. create the sound effect if you desire other examples come to mind uh, the horror movie valentine's day um i'd forgotten about this but the prophecy films have a lot of this with angels ripping each other's hearts out mm. um dumb and dumber has a heart rip scene that i'd forgotten about i can't remember if, is that supposed to be a dream sequence or is that supposed to really happen or does it matter in dumb and dumber it is a dream sequence okay okay uh then there's a rambo last blood and last of the mohicans actually seen very few of these movies oh well uh, we might we might have to come back to the prophecy films oh but um i don't know some of those you could probably miss um especially maybe leprechaun six but uh but yeah there it's it's kind of a staple of horror um oftentimes if you have any kind of like supernatural being you know you have some sort of really lightning quick heart rip there's a great example of this on the hbo series true blood which i guess over overall looking back on it kind of a mixed bag but uh, the excellent character actor Dennis O'Hare does have this wonderful character, the the vampire king of Mississippi. His name is Russell Eddington. Uh, he's a real highlight of the show while he's on the show. And there's a scene where I forget exactly what ticks him off, but vampires are supposed to be secret in the in the series, and he just gets mad and instantly like speeds to. Um, like a live news broadcast and rips the broadcaster's heart out through his back along with a piece of his spine and uh, that stands out in my in, in my mind is one of the finest moments of that series uh the main thing that comes to my mind is that the manual heart removal
0: is the primary move of an unarmed terminator in the terminator films
1: oh d- did he rip some hearts out
0: that's what yeah that's man. what arnold schwarzenegger does in the first movie when he comes to up the on punks yeah, he like uh, Bill Paxton or somebody, or the guy oh, Bill Paxton's okay. hanging
1: out with. It's been so long since I saw the first Terminator. I really need to go back and, and watch it. I don't
0: know why that's the move they chose. I mean, it's scary in the movie. But it, it, I don't know if that really speaks of robotic
1: efficiency. It's like taking the batteries out, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, with that out of the way, uh, we're going to begin to move into what we're we're ultimately really talking about in this pair of episodes this week, and that is um, heart removals. And, and how they factored into uh, different views, different supernatural understandings of the human body. And the cosmos, Uh, we're not gonna. We're probably not gonna go super in depth into heart uh, symbolism and metaphors in in terms of trying to be, um, you know, to completely cover the topic because it is a broad topic. You have like any given culture has some sort of idea about what the heart is, and there's a lot of overlap. uh, But then there are some distinct ideas mixed in there as well, and we'll touch on some of these. I think a, a good place to start would be, of course, with the Egyptian heart now um there was a, we had a past episode of the show this was a, There was an interview that I did with author Bill Shutt, who uh, wrote a book called pump it's quite good. It gets into um, animal hearts and, and various um, uh, you know, the history of understanding the human heart, medical history of the heart uh, wonderful read and in that book he he does bring up that yes, the ancient Egyptians knew the heart as Ab or Ib or Hati. Uh, it was treated with a great deal of reverence, as this was the organ said, to contain a record of the individual's good and bad deeds. And I think a, a number, any, if you've consumed any amount of Egyptology over the years, you're probably familiar with the basic scenario that is often related here. That after you have died, uh, it is this heart that will be weighed uh, against a feather of Maat, the uh, goddess of truth, to see if you can indeed pass on into the realms beyond our life here on earth or if you're going to be consumed by this ferocious beast of annihilation and thus no longer exist
0: i think it's a crocodile type or crocodile-ish beast isn't it
1: yes yeah it is it is a uh, crocodile-esque i'm blanking on the, the name of the the entity uh, off the top of my head but uh but yeah you basically have the the uh, this this split road between annihilation and continued existence, but you can only continue to exist if your heart uh, matches up against this feather of Maat, the goddess of truth. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Now, as Geraldine Pinch mentions in um, her book Egyptian Mythology, uh, yeah, the ancient Egyptians view the heart as the organ of thought and feeling, and it was the seat of consciousness itself. And uh, Maat, the uh, the goddess here, was is often seen as this ostrich feather adorned goddess of truth and goodness. So, uh, thus, her feather would match the weight of your heart if you had. Truth in your heart, if you had uh, mat at in your heart uh, um, at all, so that's the the, the basic scenario there. Now, Shutt cites historian Roger K. French, who rationalized that the basic idea in the Egy- Egyptian model here is that life is warm, the heart is warm, the heart moves, and with its movements, we we breathe and our vessels carry blood to the rest of our body. Shutt also points out uh, that the 1555 BCE Book of the Heart may reveal some level of understanding regarding heart attacks and aneurysms among the ancient Egyptians, but historians are not all in agreement on to what degree we can interpret it this way. Now, given the importance of the heart in all of this, especially the continuation of the soul in ancient uh, Egyptian belief, uh, this probably reminds a lot of people out there of another fact about the mummified remains of an individual, about what happens to various internal organs. Several of these internal organs are are often uh, uh, placed inside of a canopic jar, including the heart.
0: Yes, and so th- that brings me to how I wanted to look at a specific example of a mummy to examine treatment of the heart uh, in a case where it was well documented. Uh, So obviously, Egyptian embalming, mummification and burial practices varied by time and place. And ancient Egyptian civilization spans a really long time, thousands of years, so... The example I'm about to talk about is not characteristic of everything in ancient Egypt, but I thought it was interesting to look at one example in particular, especially because it contradicts a generalization that many people have made over the years about Egyptian mummification, one that I definitely remember learning when I was younger. And the generalization is this, that during mummification, the brain is always removed. Of course, you get the the famous uh, grotesque image of the the hook going through the face holes to remove the brain. Mm -hmm. And that the heart being the seat of the soul, as you just explained, was left in place in the body. So maybe the other organs were removed, but the heart was left in the
1: chest. And by the way, if if memory serves, uh, I think I'm remembering from a past episode on mummies. The the brain, we have to, to remember, the brain, I believe, is often thought to have uh, gone rancid first, uh, to have rotted first, and therefore we have to factor that into all of this as well, along with these understandings uh, for the ancient Egyptians about what organs were doing.
0: Now, the specific mummy I was reading about that, that contradicted this uh, generalization was uh, featured in a in a paper uh, based uh, especially around some CT scan research that was published in 2014 in the journal, the academic journal, The Yearbook of Mummy Studies. It's a funny name. It's, it nice. makes you imagine the mummies are like writing, you know, stay cool, have a great summer. Or they're like going through drawing hearts around all the mummies they have a crush on, like this mummy's so cute. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I, uh, so I was reading about this paper in a concurrent article in Live Science by Owen Jarrus called Ancient Egyptian Mummy Found With Brain, No Heart. So this mummy is the body of a woman who lived about 1700 years ago, according to radiocarbon dating, placing her under the period of Roman control of Egypt. And she died somewhere between the ages of 30 and 50. And her body shows signs of severe dental health issues and tooth loss, which apparently is quite common for ancient Egyptian bodies from this period. Uh, I don't know if that's because they were getting lots of sugar or what. I don't know what the explanation is, but a lot of dental problems. And the religious and cultural context would be this was a person who still adhered to a version of traditional Egyptian religion or the variant of it that was popular at this time at a time when Christianity was actually spreading through the region and becoming more and more dominant. Now, in contradiction to the brain-removed, heart-left-in-place generalization I heard when I was growing up, this mummy is exactly the opposite. Uh, Analysis of CT scans by the researchers found that the embalmers, in this case, uh, they worked by making an incision in the perineum, and then through here they removed the intestines, the stomach, the liver, and the heart. Heart came out, too. So after all these organs were removed, they lined the incision that they had made with resin and linen cloth, and then they placed a couple of plaques on this woman's body, on the skin over the stomach and over the sternum. And to read from Jairus's summary, quote, something that may have been intended to ritually heal the damage the embalmers had done and act as a replacement of sorts for her removed heart. And this would not be the only example uh, in ancient Egyptian embalming practices where the heart was taken out and something else was put in there seemingly in its place or to replace it. Uh, I'll I'll mention another couple of examples of that in a minute. But after this, her body was treated with um, spices and with lichen covering, uh, I think, her head and her her, uh, upper body. And she was wrapped and buried somewhere near Luxor. At the time of this article, by the way, the mummy was in the collection of the Red Path Museum at McGill University in Montreal. But anyway, this raises an interesting question. If the heart was so important in Egyptian religion, that, uh, so important that for a long time people assumed it was always left in place when body, bodies were mummified, what was happening in the cases where it actually was removed and how common was that? Um, Well, to quote a professor named Andrew Wade from McMaster University, who's the author of another uh, uh, piece I'm going to look at in a minute. uh, Wade says, quote, we don't really know what's happening to the hearts that are removed. (laughs) So (laughs) it's assumed that, uh, as you alluded to a minute ago, Rob, they were usually when they were removed, they were put into canopic jars, which uh, we know were used to hold internal organs removed from other mummies. But that's not always known for sure. So sometimes we just don't know what happened to the heart. And there's still the question of why, why did they do this? Well, we don't know, but the authors of the CT study speculate that perhaps the two plaques on her abdomen and her sternum were meant as a kind of healing or a replacement for the wounds inflicted by the embalming process itself. Like, okay, we had to cut a hole in your body in order to process your body for burial. So here's a plaster healing symbol to counteract that incision. And then perhaps the plaque on the sternum was somehow a replacement for the missing heart. But again, uh, we don't know for sure and we don't know why the heart was removed. Hmm. But I came across uh, another uh, piece that has some some interesting thoughts about this. So for a more general look at the treatment of the heart in Egyptian mummification, I was looking at uh, I don't think this is a paper in an academic journal. I think this is a fact sheet from a presentation at an academic conference that was put together by a couple of experts by Andrew D. Wade and Andrew J. Nelson. I know that one of the two authors here Wade was uh, the one who was quoted in that ar- article we were just talking about. So the authors of uh, of this presentation here say that many generalizations made these days about the treatment of the heart in Egyptian mummification are based not on modern empirical research, but rather on accounts given by classical authors. So if we are going to use literary evidence, uh, evidence from ancient texts, for what these funeral practices were— Uh, You know, it would be really good to have a lot of direct Egyptian accounts, and we have some Egyptian accounts about beliefs about funeral practices and, and the afterlife. But instead, a lot of the literary evidence we use is mostly in Greek and Roman texts from authors like Herodotus and Plutarch. And in fact, they say the only author specifically mentioning the heart as opposed to making more general statements about what is done with the organs during uh, mummification is the Ptolemaic period Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, who writes as follows, quote, When they have gathered to treat the body after it has been slit open, one of them thrusts his hand through the opening in the corpse into the trunk and extracts everything but the kidneys and the heart, and another one cleanses each of the viscera, washing them in palm wine and spices. So, based on this uh, we, we've got Diodorus here saying that the heart is always left in place, uh, but of course, remember he he was Ptolemaic period, and this is one author and This presentation I looked at was designed to compare those literary accounts of heart treatment uh to evidence again from c t scans or from m- mummies that have actually been empirically taken apart and described in the scientific literature, so we like looked to see what was left in them. And they say there are three basic patterns of of heart treatment in mummies. One is retention, so the heart stays in the chest even if other organs are removed. Number two is removal, the heart is taken out of the body. And number three is replacement, where the heart is removed and something symbolic is left in its place, generally something called a heart scarab, which is a type of amulet. Mm -hmm. So how do the empirical findings stack up? The authors write, quote, The heart was noted as intact in only 21 of 80 individuals where this organ's disposition was recorded. In barely more than a quarter of the individuals in this sample was the heart retained in situ. In only one case was the heart possibly sewn back into place, and in one other case was a heart scarab present, presumably to replace the removed heart. And so, Rob, you can see I've included a chart from their presentation below uh, where you can uh, look at the trends where uh, these are not percentages, but these are absolute numbers of uh, examples from these different periods. And you can see that heart retention predominates in the small number of samples of mummies we have from the Middle and New Kingdoms. Uh, but then, as time goes on, uh, heart retention is outnumbered by heart removals in the third intermediate uh, period, the late period, and the Ptolemaic and Roman periods. So, in the words of the authors, quote, mummies were increasingly absent their hearts from the new kingdom onward. As time goes on, more and more of the mummies we find have their hearts removed. Mm. And so the authors conclude, quote, the stereotype of universal heart retention or replacement on accidental removal is far from the truth. The heart was uncommonly retained in situ and rarely returned or replaced by a heart scarab. The hypothesis constructed from the stereotyped account by Diodorus is therefore falsified by these data.
1: Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Now, now also worth uh, just driving home, though, that this is all separate, of course, from the uh, purely sort of mythological. Uh, situation in which the heart is weighed. Uh, that's right. taking place in another realm. Uh, that is not taking <laughs> place in the physical world.
0: Right. This is a study about what happened to the bodies, not necessarily about what the people in question believed about what was happening in the afterlife.
1: Right. And though it's also worth driving home that also with belief, especially when we're talking about ancient Egypt, again, like you said, we're talking about a, a very um, a long period of time in which practices change, but also beliefs also change. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, it's hard to just, you can't just sum everything up in, like, say, a pamphlet about, like, here's what the ancient Egyptians believed or did because you're covering such a, a broad period of time.
0: Correct. And th- this is the point the authors here are making. Uh, they, they use this as evidence that the classical descriptions of Engl- uh, Egyptian mummification by like Greek and Latin authors should only be used as, they say, at best, quote, a possible snapshot of mummification performed by one particular workshop, hmm. uh, unquote, and not like an adequate description of universal practices or even of the most common practices across time and space. Uh, So but I I still had the question about like, why, though, is there any clue as to why this difference that in some cases the heart is retained in other cases, the heart is removed? And uh, are there any trends in like whose hearts were removed and whose were left in place? The authors do offer a bit of speculation here. They say that, uh, you know, interestingly, in the mummies available to us, there seems to be a somewhat of a correlation with access to mummification by different classes, hmm. so in the New Kingdom, there essentially was a process of democratization of mummification. Previously, mummification had been a, an incredibly exclusive right, which uh, was only available to you know the top top elites. But then they say, "quote." As time progressed, the nobles gained increasing access to mummification and retained their hearts. With the democratization of mummification, however, the commoners being mummified were not receiving the same treatment, possibly to ensure that the elite maintained a more favorable afterlife than their subjects.
1: Oh, wow. That that went in a different direction than I was expecting. I thought it would just maybe be like, well, this is... This is a premium service for premium customers. We can't offer the same level of mummification services for a lesser price, but it seems like it also could be ensuring the status quo in the afterlife.
0: It, it could be because, I mean, so I don't know how it would necessarily be cheaper to remove the heart than not remove the heart, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like it, just in terms of the actual cost in the, like labor to the embalmers. Uh, So, yeah, it could be a deliberate choice to sort of uh, create an artificial uh, tiered system for quality of mummification and make sure, well, there's a really special kind of mummification where your heart stays in and that's only available to the elites. But Mm -hmm. we don't know that for sure. I want to be very clear. We don't know the reasoning. Uh, But that is an interesting, plausible scenario that it's like it was in order to create a kind of elite or premium tiered type of mummification at a time when more people were getting mummification at all.
1: Fascinating.
0: But we don't know for sure. And so I think this remains a really interesting question. I would love to like know more if someone could have more evidence to shed direct light on, on why this this difference emerged. <laughs>
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, another uh, scenario of heart removal that's rather rather different in, in many respects, but one that probably instantly comes to many people's minds that I want to discuss, is the ritual removal of human hearts. Uh, by the Mayans and the Aztecs, but especially uh, for research purposes here, the Mayans. So the, the the ancient Mayans are known to have performed human sacrifices involving the removal of the heart, though not in the post mortem sense. Um, the removal of the heart, essentially via ritualistic sacrifice, ritualistic execution. You could think of it as vivisection, or um, or just a, or or even death by heart removal. I imagine. One article I was reading on the topic was Procedures in Human Heart Extraction and Ritual Meaning by Tesler and Chuchina, published in Latin American Antiquity in 2006. And as you can tell by the title, this is a paper that deals predominantly with the procedures. How were they carrying this out? Um, not so much the, uh, you know, the, the the why's. We'll get into some of the why's. Uh, but essentially, these were religious practices. Um, But uh, I was not aware that there's been so much much, uh, discussion and attempts to understand exactly how the heart was removed. So, they looked at skeletal remains of suspected heart removal, human sacrifice uh, cases, and contended that the sacrificers would carry these procedures out by, quote, a transdiaphragmatic and I looked. I had to look that up. I, Webster says use the hard G on transdiaphragmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm going with, with with what Webster's saying in this case. Uh, the definition being occurring, passing, or performed through the diaphragm.
0: You mean the diaphragm?
1: Yes, the diaphragm. <laughs> um, and so this would yeah opening immediately below the rib cage, and this would help ensure rapid removal of the heart. And this is where they get into uh, they 're going up against some some previous theories about how they carried this out, in particular, there was an eight to ten minute procedure estimate by Robesic and Hales in one thousand nine hundred and eighty four These authors had argued that the sacrificer would have cut through the thorax from side to side, collapsing the lung in the process. This would make the victim unconscious within three to four minutes and allow the rest of the surgery to proceed without struggle. And they do kind of frame it as kind of a surgery, a vivisection with heart removal occurring while the heart was still palpitating, which seemed to be the desired effect to pull the heart out while the heart seems to still have life in it. Another analysis from Gonzalez-Torres argued as well for a below-the-ribs approach, but stressed that the exact style may have varied from region to region. So, again, we get into a similar situation with mummification, just because one um, mummification lab was doing it one way, doesn't mean they were doing it the same way at another lab at another time. And likewise, the way hearts were removed via blood ritual, blood sacrifice, in one instance, it might be different in another. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, different styles for different sacrificers or some sort of evolution of style. Tesla and Chichina, meanwhile, write, quote, it must be underlined in this context that ritual heart removal entailed a violent vivisection of a struggling victim and was therefore quicker and fundamentally distinctive from the cautious procedures implied in a quote unquote surgical operation as visualized by Rubasek and Hales. Now, the sacrificial victim's Uh, In these situations were typically enslaved people, sometimes children or prisoners of war who were and, uh, and I'm reading that they were often either painted blue first or pelted with arrows. And once the heart was removed, its blood was generally used to smear or anoint some sort of divine icon or some sort of structure, that sort of thing.
0: Now, as sacrifices, these would have had a religious significance. Is the significance of the act better understood than, than maybe the significance of the removal or non-removal of the heart in the Egyptian example?
1: I believe so, based on uh, the work I was looking at. There's a, a paper here by uh, Tesler and Oliver in Open Caskets and Broken Hearts, great, great title, from a 2020 edition of Current Anthropology. And the authors here write that the, quote, Partitioning and the liberation of vitalizing matter, namely the heart and blood, fed specific sacred forces during divine cult and mythic reenactment. They also uh, provide a note on Aztec sacrifices, quote, as for the Aztecs, we conclude that different trunk opening procedures were practiced as part of ritual sequences that in each case enabled access to the cosmic sacred mountain with its vivifying essences. So, in other words, hearts and blood were essentially food for gods of the sun and gods of the earth, deities who in turn sacrificed or, or, or in turn, or you could say originally sacrificed something to create the universe. And the sacrifices here were acts of, obli- uh, the, the actual blood ritual sacrifices, not the mythological sacrifices, were acts of, quote, obligation, reciprocation, and reenactment. So there are several different things going on there. Like there's a, a sort of a mythic understanding of what the heart and the blood is. There's this reenactment of things that occurred in sacred time, the idea that there was some sort of, a, of blood ritual and, and sacrifice that occurred with mythological beings, and the thing that is taking place in the sacrifice is important insofar as it is reenacting this mythic incident. Mm. And there's this also, you know, basically like what we, we sort of generalize about sacrifice, something is offered up so that something else may be offered down to us as, mm. as humans. They also mention in this uh, article that while the under-the-rib technique does seem more common, and I believe this is a slightly later work, there are three distinct tactics that were used. There's cutting directly under the ribs, there's making an incision between two ribs, and then there's horizontally severing the sternum in order to access the heart. But again, it seems like going under the ribs was the most common technique. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, additionally, and just sort of like trying to you know, get into the whole, like, what, what did ancient people, uh, or in this case, what did the Mayans who were engaging in heart removal sacrifice, what did they think of the heart? What other ideas were, uh, were, were going on regarding the, the center of our circulatory system? On this, I found an interesting discussion of ideas concerning the human body uh, among the Sital people. The Zatal people are a Mayan people in southern Mexico. Um, So in this particular work, it is the Ethnophysiology of the Zatal Maya of the Highland Chiapas by Cameron Littleton Adams. Uh, This was a Doctors of Philosophy dissertation uh, from the University of Georgia. So I'm not going to get into everything that's discussed here. Uh, And again, this is not the Mayan people of old, but contemporary Mayan peoples. Um, But there are these interesting ideas in their thinking about the connection of the heart to cognition. Uh, Not thinking with the heart instead of the brain, but sort of thinking with it. So I found that kind of interesting because there are some other instances we'll get into as well, in in, in addition to the Egyptian model, where uh, this seems like maybe a a modern twist on on these older ideas of the heart being the center of thought, the center of being. Uh, So maybe it's a situation where, like in the modern world, you know that the brain is the center of cognition, but there's still the, the symbolic and metaphorical uh, importance of the heart as being something vital to who we are and having some sort of emotional connection, which i th- I think we can all relate to that, especially on valentine's day like we're so on valentine 's day we're so steeped in this idea that yeah, the heart is not just a thing that pumps blood
0: uh yeah, and there is to some degree some accuracy and wisdom in that way of thinking because of course while I think it is quite clear that the brain is the necessary organ for cognition, like you couldn't have thinking without the brain, that the rest of the body influences the thinking that happens in the brain. And the brain is not like a a thing floating apart from the body.
1: Yeah. Now, Adams has this wonderful little uh, uh, line in here I want to read. I found this very fascinating. Quote, further, health is referred to by the semantic pair walking and working. And the heart is conceived of as a homunculus, an internal being that makes commands that must be obeyed. Now, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth or or visualizations in anyone else's worldview. So I don't think this is supposed to literally be a homunculus or this idea that like the heart that in each of us, there's like a squat little like tough little um, like red flesh being uh, that lives in the center of our chest and sort of uh, you know p- puppet masters the rest of us it's more of like an idea of like what's going on in the heart versus what's going on on the outside it's I guess it's more uh, metaphorical but I think it's still an intriguing idea um, well and, and I, I could be misunderstanding but I kind of read that as it.
0: it sounds like it's suggesting the heart as a something that is separate from the conscious mind but has desires of its own that must be obeyed
1: yeah yeah I think that's fair as well though it is it's hard for me to not just picture like literal homunculus in the heart but I know that's not what the, what the, the author is going for here but it's, it's interesting to think about all this like when we think about heart and brain, we think okay, brain is thought, heart is is circulatory system. But of course, if we we know that the, the two need each other. Like they can, the brain cannot live independent of some sort of heart uh, that is uh, doing the job of the heart. Be that um, uh, a transplanted heart or an artificial heart. Like that is a role that has to be filled for the brain to do its thing as well.
0: And that feedback from an input from the rest of the body affects how the brain works. That right you know, that. For in in incredibly mundane ways that you're familiar with, such as like you think different when you're hungry, like when you're Mm -hmm. getting feedback from your digestive system or something or from your blood sugar, that's going to affect the way you feel and the way you think. But it's also in much subtler and stranger ways as well that there is a a relationship between uh, what's happening in, say, your gut microbiome and the way your brain works and on and on.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there's the the very simple observation that, hey, when I am very excited, when I'm agitated, my heart is beating faster. And when I'm very calm, my heart is beating very slowly and realizing that, yeah, there there are all these very observable connections between the way that we, uh, you know, what's going on in our mind and our being and what's going on seemingly in the center of our chest.
0: All right. Well, I think maybe we're going to have to call this episode there for part one, but we will be back in part two to discuss more heart removal traditions and thoughts about heart removal from the point of view of uh, other cultures in in Norse traditions in uh, in medieval Christianity. We're going to talk about uh, boiling some crusaders. Uh, it's <laughs> it's going to be fun.
1: Yes, there will be more uh, human sacrifice. There will be more heart removal uh, and, and much more. So uh, be sure to check back in on Thursday as we continue our our special Valentine's Day celebration of the removed heart. In the meantime, if you would like to uh, listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you will find them all in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, We have our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail episode. On Wednesdays, the normal schedule is we do a short-form monster fact or artifact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to do an episode of Weird House Cinema. That's where, really, most of the heart-ripping takes place on this show. Huge thanks to our audio
0: producer JJ Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows today's episode is brought to you by visible the future of wireless is here and it's transparent
1: Zumo Play.